Flip to uh, Ecclesiastes in your Bibles, and we're going to look at verses, um, the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. It'll be the longest section that we look at, um, but you'll want to follow along so you can put your, put your thumb there. And uh, this message is called The Vanity of Human Wisdom. So let's first pray, and then uh, we'll dig in. Our Father in God, we, we pray as your children today for you to extend to us yet again an immeasurable amount of grace as we look to you and we look to your word. May your spirit impart to us an optimistic joy that aligns with your will and your wisdom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So um, the passage that I chose here, though it is long, uh, it, does, it does form a cohesive train of thought. So this, the assertion, as we saw from, from last week in verse 2, uh, Koheleth, the preacher, says that all is vanity. All is vanity. Now, I want to clarify something with you on that because it could be misunderstood um, and misleading, and I want to make sure that we, we uh, have a, a correct understanding, um, especially as we go through the rest of the book. The word vanity, I want to clarify, is not necessarily meant to mean complete and utter meaninglessness. Solomon um, does not wish us to be, you know, like Jean-Paul Sartre, the, the existentialists of the day um, who relativize everything we see. You know, that's, that's the spirit of our age is existentialism. Um, everything's, if it's true for you, it's fine. Just don't make that truth apply to me. I have my own version of truth. You have yours. You know, let's just slap the bumper sticker on and coexist, right? So we, we don't want to go that route with, with the word vanity. The vanity that he describes is this profound sense of monotony and order that appears to be meaningless, okay? There's an appearance of meaninglessness, especially when life is done on one's own terms and not done on God's terms. So the goal of the book is to explore the endless vapor that is human existence in order to tell us to appreciate it all. Your life is a vapor, appreciate it. Have joy, that sort of thing. Whether you like it or not, because it comes from God, and because that comes from God, we can find joy in Him. Okay, so next time you want to lament for folding laundry and or cleaning the dishes, suck it up, buttercup. Uh, you should be happy to do that. <laughs> That's Solomon's wisdom for us. So vanity isn't boring. It's not supposed to be boring. It's what, gives, uh, it's what God gives to us to enjoy. God wants us to enjoy the sunrise and the sunset every single day. That's something he wants us to enjoy. As much as it pains me to say this, although our winter here in Virginia has been fabulous for the most part, um, even, even some of those who still come to us from Michigan, you have to enjoy the snow <laughs> every year for eight months, it seems like, especially there. But God enjoys it. He enjoys it. He enjoys the monotony. He enjoys the repetition. And that's not something that bores God. It doesn't bore him for you to pray to him the same prayer you've prayed the past 10 years. Because you're doing, assuming you're doing it in faith and not just, you know, rote repetition. So, the preacher, in order to prove his point, the preacher demonstrates his thesis in the following ways. The last week we looked at the prologue, the very first 11 verses, and he demonstrates for us um, this view of vanity in the created order. He talks about the sun 
which is, you know, fire. He talks about the earth, wind. He talks about water, the ancient elements. And all of it experiences vanity. It always, the trees are going to lose their leaves every fall. The timing of that, of course, depends on various factors, but it's just going to happen. That's the vanity in nature. So today, though, we're going to cover the next sections. And if you look in your Bible, I'll just section it off for you so you can see visually where it is. So chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, that's an experiment about knowledge. So he's going to explore knowledge in the last part of chapter 1. He's going to talk about how that's vanity. Chapter 2, if you look at um, verses 1 through 11, that forms a, a section where he's experimenting with pleasure and he draws the same conclusion, that's vanity. Chapter 2, verses uh, 12 through 17, that is going to be a section where he experiences uh, or he observes that all men experience the same fate. And then the end of the book, chapter 2, verses 18 to 23, is an experiment with human toil. So he's going to conclude his thesis. Now, I want to, we're going to do something different. I want to start at the end, and then we'll work our way through it, okay? So look at the end of chapter 2. The last paragraph there, verses 24 through 26. He says, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. There's our word joy. And while the sinner, while to the sinner he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. That's his conclusion from all of his experimentation here in the first two chapters. That's the conclusion. Now, a quick side to these verses. There is a lot of contention on the meaning of the Hebrew here. It's very obscure in verse 24. Your Bible might even have a note. Um, Some do, some don't. In verse 24, it says, there is nothing better, but the word better isn't actually there in the Hebrew. It's supplied by scholars, partly for good reason, because in other sections of the book, that is there. So it's assumed that that's the meaning of what he's suggesting here. But Walter Kaiser, he's a scholar. He argues that it should probably be translated differently. And I think his argument makes sense. He says in verse 24, it should say, There is not a good inherent in man that he should eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. There is not a good inherent in man that leads you to that conclusion, in other words. So the point is, is that the preacher... He's going to conclude that God gives us gifts, all right? We all acknowledge that. God gives us gifts, uh, blessings, if you will. And God also, though, gives you the ability to enjoy those gifts, all right? Because the unbeliever, the person who's at odds with Christ, they get gifts from God, but they don't have the enjoyment of them in the way God intends, So that's his argument here. You get the gift, you get the enjoyment. He gives us the car. He also gives us the keys to enjoy the car, which is an analogy I'm going to come back to in a little bit. So the unbelievers have a car, but they don't have any keys. They're just kicking the tires and wishing that it could go somewhere. So we'll come back to that. All right, flip back to chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. 
It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. He keeps telling us this, all is vanity. All is vanity. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So, the preacher does an experiment with wisdom. He believes that wisdom is much more preferable than foolishness. You're going to do better in life if you're wise. And yet in the end, though, he says, you know, everyone has the same fate. Uh, you all face the same um, issue of death. So perhaps, you know, there's no real profit after all. If, that's, if, if, it's, if the grave is the final resting stop, whether you're wise or foolish, maybe it just doesn't matter. Maybe you should just be a fool. Now, he desires to figure this conundrum out, obviously. Well, you know, what advantage is this? It's a noble, though, but futile task. He says that's vanity, too. Even trying to think of that is vanity. So perhaps wisdom can solve the dilemma. So man is afflicted with something which is actually a gift from God. Man cannot straighten what God has made crooked, if you look at verse 15. Man cannot straighten that which God has made crooked. The purpose of the meaninglessness, or the vanity, if you will, is only given by God. God gives you the dishes to do over and over and over again. He gives you the lawn to mow over and over and over again. In other words, man can't change the inscrutable decrees of God. You can't change it. We like to fashion our own destiny, at least we think, but frankly, you can't change. You can't straighten what God has made crooked. Now, it's not that man has made something crooked and God can't seem to straighten it out. Please note that. Okay? The problem is God made it crooked. God made it crooked. God gave the grievous, seemingly meaningless task. Vanity, in other words, is a remarkable gift of God. Wisdom is, as one author has said, a pain in the neck. The wisdom here and elsewhere in Ecclesiastes is the fact that God is the one who has determined for us to experience the futility. You may, you may dread the winter months, but it is not something that God dreads. He is quite fine with a polar vortex coming to freeze your pipes. He's okay with it. Um, he is okay with the unbelievable amount of rain we got in a couple days this past week. We went from almost, what, 70 degrees to 40 degrees in one day. It was like Michigan all over again. So God enjoys that, though. It pleases God that you have 24 hours each day, no more, no less. It's, it, it pleases God that you have to brush your teeth, that you have to sweep the floors, and that you have to get oil changes. It's something that pleases God. The vanity is a gift, as we're going to see. Look at verse 16. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. Even his dad, David, right? And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after wind. <laughs> Who can catch the wind, right? Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. So the preacher, he continues his thesis on knowledge, his pursuit of knowledge and understanding the vanity. The principle, he says, of compound interest is at play. More knowledge and more wisdom 
results in this inexorable snowball of sorrow and pain with no end in sight. More wisdom, more knowledge, more vexation, more grief. The more you know, the more you accumulate, you're also more accountable to, to whom much is given, much is required, sort of principle here. More vexation. The, the search for life's meaning, whether you're a wise person or a fool, um, I would say is a manner of theonomic perspective of God's law. Um, for example, the, the shackles, the, the vanity for the fool will be uh, shackles that he's trying to escape. But the vanity for a wise person would be material to create something nice, something suitable. That's the difference of perspective. Either way, the sorrow increases, and this merry-go-round of vanity is crooked because God made it that way. You can. We've figured out how to deal with the snow, with um, snow blowers if they start, or back-breaking shovels. Like, we've created ways to try and straighten out what's crooked in our perception of, you know, of what we perceive as a problem. But the reality is there's no end in sight. It's, but God made it that way. Our job is to, to enjoy it, not, not to become self-deceived ex- existentialists who theorize and pontificate our theories along the way about why things are the way they are. Well, God made them, so enjoy it. <laughs> Chapter 2. Verse 1, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. Now we're past knowledge, we're on to pleasure. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine. He's not talking about drunkenness, by the way, but in the enjoyment of wine, which the Bible describes. While my mind was guiding me wisely, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. Unhinged hedonism became Solomon's next voyage into wisdom and folly. Just enjoy yourself. Don't take, take all bets are off the table. Just enjoy everything. He laughs. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe laughter is the, the key. We can just make fun of everything and live in this constant world of sarcasm and laughter. He says, oh, no, that's, that's madness, right? A sense of humor only goes so long, especially when tragedy strikes. Next comes the glass of bourbon with no ice. <laughs> Fools numb themselves with egregious habits of addiction, trying to seek pleasure and those types of things. Wise men know that that won't even do the trick. Wise men know the answer is not at the bottom of a 40. Filling your mind with wisdom or emptying your mind with a quick high both end in the same reckless result, vanity. Verse 4. Let's see how far he goes with his pleasure. I enlarged my works, expanded his influence, became a better hymn, read some great self-help books. I built houses for myself. How many of you can build houses, plural, (laughs) for yourself? I planted vineyards for myself. I don't have a vineyard. I made gardens and parks for myself. Anyone own a park? (laughs) And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I have had home-born slaves 
uh, slavery, by the way, here, just a quick note, being those who would sell themselves in the marketplace to pay for debts they can't afford, not chattel slavery, which is what the U.S. experienced and perpetrated. Um, also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Concubines were not legally wives, um, more like handmaidens. Uh, if you think of Abraham and Sarah, that would be, be kind of one example of the relationship. So he went after it, didn't he? <laughs> he hired male and female singers. I've never done that. First Kings tells us about Solomon's acquisition of wealth. He spared no pleasure in his pursuit. For him, this was a conscious decision uh, to pursue meaning and purpose apart from God's great gift of joy in him. Perhaps meaning is in pleasure. That's what we have going on in our nation right now. Abortion is a convenience promiscuity run rampant that's pleasure the pursuit of pleasure perhaps he like the buddhists can build gardens and contemplate the meaning of life or maybe he can assert his power by telling people what to do maybe he can accumulate wealth and fix the profit and loss statement to show a massive surplus in the budget what about buildings and monuments of what we can call self-aggrandizing architecture who wouldn't love a statue of themselves in their own park next to the pond that feel, feels their own trees, right? Why not, you know? What about singers paid to laud you and your greatness? Here, I will pay you to sing to me and sing about me and my greatness. Perhaps that will fix the vanity of life. Sooner or later, though, the music stops. Verse 9. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Consider that. Everything you wanted as you go out your day, you see with your eyes. And let's say you have the ability to get it. Do you think that'll fix it? I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because all of my labor, and this was my reward for all of my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. If his eye could see it, he went after it. If his heart could enjoy it, it he accumulated it. Solomon's hedonism, this is hedonism, was unhinged and without a care in the world. And crazy enough, the bank account still had money in it after the end of the day. There was no such thing as an unfunded liability in Solomon's world. Without joy, though, however, everything falls in the loss column. Without joy, everything falls in the loss column. Look at verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. He does admit wisdom is better. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. They're both going to die. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. 
Why then have I been extremely wise? <laughs> He's having that existentialist moment. So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. At the end of the day, the same fate befalls us all. How could one escape this futility, wise or a fool? Solomon, he turns, he says in the text, which is actually implies that he looked back at the path that he had just walked. He turned. Something in him agrees with, with him that, that, that wisdom is better than folly. But he wrestles with it. He wrestles with it. Both die at the end. What is the profit? Wise men can see. Fools are blind men who stumble in the darkness and they break their big toe on the end of the, of the uh, end table. But this, is this distinction, is what, what, what is the difference here? It's not like he can count on history remembering him, for everyone forgets. Ironically, we're talking about Solomon today. Like the wise man and the fool, history runs out of breath at some point. Verse 17. So I hated life. He's done all the experiments in knowledge and wisdom and pleasure. Here's, here's what he says. So I hated life. <laughs> oh, fun. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Can't even trust the inheritance left. Could be a fool that comes after you, right? Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. You could create the most thriving business. Leave it to somebody and they will squander it. He says it's vanity. Or they'll enjoy it more than you did. Maybe they were wise. See, this is a downward spiral in Solomon's view. He hated life because life under the sun, the stain of autonomy, it doesn't mean anything in and of itself. It takes God to give us meaning, God to impute meaning. Solomon's disdain means that he's at the end of the road and there's no possible way for him to do a three-point turn. He can't do it. The vanity is without meaning if all there is is vanity. If God just gives us the car and we can't do anything with it, it's pointless. But he gives us the keys to make it go. Now we can travel the world. Instead of pleasure, he has now ended his experiment in despair. Why? Because once he's long gone, only the Lord knows what sort of people are going to come after him. And isn't this fitting, mind you, as a side note? Rehoboam was Solomon's son who, shall we say, uh, assisted in the breakup of the Israelite monarchy. You can read about that in Second King, excuse me, 1 Kings, I believe, chapter 12. 
even after he's gone, someone who is wise like him will enjoy the fruit of his labor, or perhaps worse, someone who's a fool will take the fruit of the labor and squander it like the prodigal son, except this time he never returns home. So what's the conclusion? It's all vanity. And that's the point. Now, <clears throat> let's pull out some more stuff from this. Remember what we said at the conclusion about the conclusion um, here in verses 24 and 20, 25 and 26. Eating and drinking is never the problem. He says, eating and drinking is never the problem. The problem is whether or not you can thank God by bowing your head beforehand. That's the difference. Eating and drinking, what we're going to do here in a little bit. That's not the problem in and of itself. The problem is, can you bow your head in thanksgiving towards God? That's the issue. Twice, Solomon in these last few verses pulls the joy card. He says, for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? The answer, of course, is no one who fails to see that God is the one who gives the gifts in the first place. You can't enjoy the gift if you don't know the giver of the gift. In verse 26, Solomon tells us that God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. And we know from Proverbs 1.7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the issue here is this. There is a tremendous difference between embracing the vanity as a gift to be stewarded and thus enjoyed and sticking one's nose up being a grumbler at the vanity and then deciding to go your own way. Okay? The theonomist is the guy who loves God's gifts and, and appreciates God's gifts. The autonomous person is the person who sticks his nose up at the gift and decides to go his own way. That's the difference. The wisdom Solomon wants us to have is the type of wisdom to know that God is the sovereign friend who comes along to help you mow your lawn for the fifth time that month. The month of June is coming. Aaron knows. He mows quite a bit. There's always lawn to mow. But God is the type of friend who comes along and does it. It helps you. But here's the thing. It's not that, you know, Jesus grabs the weed whacker and does that while you're mowing. It's you're doing both of those activities, exerting a tremendous amount of effort, sweating profusely, and you thank him for the work that you have to do. That's how he helps you. See, there are two types of people in this world. Those who go to bed tired and those who go to bed tired and thankful. You can break your back welding, get home late only to eat warmed up leftovers, which I actually like anyway, but we'll assume it's bad. <laughs> and you go to bed a happy man. Or you cannot lift a finger all day, not thank God, go and get your favorite five-star meal, and then go to bed and be the most depressed person on the planet. See, the difference, again, is not so much the amount of work or the quality of the work. The difference is joy and whether or not you have the courage to see all of it as God's gift to you. That's the issue. See, the problem with human wisdom, as Solomon sees it, is not about having things over against not having things. So if you want to build your own park with your own statue, fine. But it's probably arrogant to do that. <laughs> it's not about those things. It's not about having things versus not having things. It's not about prosperity gospel versus poverty gospel. It's not those things. 
the, the people who think that way are, you know, this is the pietists who think that that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. You know, don't accumulate stuff, it's bad. That's not Solomon's point. The difference is whether you can have joy. We're not arguing that having parks and ponds and singers is evil, so just go broke for Jesus. That's human wisdom, by the way. That's the vanity of human wisdom. Human wisdom tries to manage your guilt rather than repent of your sin. Human wisdom tries to accumulate the next high, right? The next rush, the next experience for the sake of self-congratulations. Human wisdom pushes boundaries for the sake of pushing boundaries. Human wisdom leans on power and authority in order to get more and more power authority in order to affect other people with your power and authority. See, in short, the, the problem with human wisdom, as Solomon sees it, is that it never wants the governor of God's grace. It's, it's unhinged. It's, this, it's a ferocious dog without a leash. That is human wisdom. I mentioned the metaphor of the car earlier, so let's explore that some more. Solomon's great experiment with wisdom is very much can be likened to God's gift of a car. Born into this world, sinful man is inescapably reduced to having a car without the keys. He may sit in the car, he may look out of the windows and imagine many things. He may press the gas pedal or even the brake, but nothing happens. The vent swivel opens and closes, uh, but no air comes out. He fusses with the seatbelt, but isn't even quite sure what to do with it. This is the sinner in God's world. Uh, he gets bored with the car because he doesn't have the keys to really explore all of its features. He is reduced to the vanity of human wisdom. Can he turn that car into a house? Well, sure, he can sleep in it, but good luck trying to cook a meal. Can he paint it? Sure, you can paint it. Uh, he can do some things with the car. He can do some things, but at the end of the day, he can't really go anywhere meaningful. See, when Christians are born again and brought into God's covenant, they are given the car keys. They can go places, and guess what? They can enjoy the view. They have both the gift and the ability to enjoy the gift. Sure, the car needs gas, the brakes have to be changed out, and eventually you're going to have to spring for new tires, which seems to get more and more expensive each year. All of it's vanity, right? It's vanity. But wow, is the car fun. The keys make the car enjoyable. Rather than being a large, overpriced paperweight... <laughs> The car unlocks the meaning and the purpose. It makes it go. It doesn't make the vanity go away, mind you. And it doesn't make the vanity become tolerable. It makes it enjoyable. I'm going to say that again because I don't want you to miss this. When you get the keys, it doesn't make the vanity go away. You all live in God's world. The vanity's here. The repetition is here. The go to bed, get up to work. Go to bed, get up to work, right? The vanity's there. And when God's grace comes to your life, it doesn't just make that tolerable. It makes it enjoyable. There's a big difference. And true godly wisdom, as opposed to human wisdom, makes sure that the joy is never dislodged or dis uh, separated from the sovereignty of God. He, God doesn't want to make your life tolerable. Jesus Christ didn't die so that you could tolerate a few things. He died so that you could have joy in your life. 
the wisdom we're talking about shows up in the New Testament passage of, of 1 Corinthians 1, which um, Emberly read earlier. That passage, the Apostle Paul compares and contrasts various ways in which people misunderstand the, the cross of Christ. The word of the cross, uh, he says, is foolishness to those dying in their sins. But what about those who are being saved? What about us? What is the word of the cross? It's, it's the power of God. It's not foolishness, it's, it's power. Wisdom is knowing the difference between a tragedy and a tragedy that changes the world. Wisdom knows the difference between the cross of Christ, which was a terrible, terrible thing, but we also know that it was God's plan. You know, that's what the book of Acts tells us. Peter says, look, this, this, this Christ who you crucified, you know, God, that was all in the foreknowledge of God. You, you were just unwitting participants in God's plan. So, ha, <laughs> that's the difference. The cross, Paul says, destroys the most wisest of men in the world. Where are all the philosophers? Does not the cross of Christ abolish their tenure in all their major universities? Does he not shame them with their lack of epistemological self-consciousness? Ha, you all, I remember um, at George Mason, um, we were doing some preaching there, and I had asked the person who was in the philosophy, he, he was a philosophy major, could you go get your professors, where are they? Because they're not out defending it. They're sitting comfort, comfortable with their tenure and salary, pontificating on junk they don't even know. Because they don't love Jesus and that's the way it goes. See, the vanity of human wisdom was unable to recognize the wisdom of God in the cross. That's the vanity of human wisdom. God was quite jovial and happy in making sure the foolishness of the cross would save those who believed. A Roman cross... Thousands were killed on a cross, right? Millions probably. A crucified Savior? How absurd is that? Exactly, God said. I love absurdity. The Jews wanted signs, but not the signs that Jesus gave. They didn't like that he wanted to toss the temple into the sea of Roman judgment. They didn't like that he gave the disease of his holiness to those who were socially unacceptable. They didn't like the signs. The Greeks, what about them? Well, they are obsessed with wisdom. Their, their dialectical meanderings gave them nothing of real value or substance. They just speculated. Oh, Socrates. The Epicureans, they were reduced to dualism. Well, the heavens are up there. We're down here. Clearly, there's no connection. Whatever. What about the Stoics? Well, they just grinned and bore it, right? What about the hedonist? Well, just do whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. Just enjoy life. But we preach Christ, don't we? And we qualify it. <clears throat> Paul says we preach Christ crucified. A dead Messiah is not a leader of Jewish nationalistic aspirations. We can't win with that. That's why the cross is foolish. A dead Messiah is not philosophically interesting at all. So why bother? That's why the Greeks didn't like the cross. They couldn't catch it. But out of the Jews and out of the Greeks, God has called people, sovereignly elected by God the Father from eternity past, to embrace the foolishness of God by believing on Jesus Christ and Him crucified as being the only means of salvation. That's the power of God. That's the wisdom of God. We'll close with these final thoughts. It is vanity and foolishness 
that shames the would-be philosopher kings. It requires humility in order to take the repetition, the monotony, the oil changes and brake pads and fuel injector cleaner and enjoy it. It takes humility. It takes humility to change that diaper for the fifth time that day. It takes humility to have to unload the dishwasher only to have to load it again soon. It takes humility to know that that vanity is a part of God's plan and you should enjoy it. See, the foolishness of God's wisdom shames the wisdom of humanity. It's the weak things that defeat the strong. The things that are not nullify the things that are. And why? Well, 1 Corinthians 1.29 tells us, so that no man may boast before God. See, human wisdom boasts in autonomy, and Solomon says, well, that's dumb. <laughs> why? why boast in yourself, your riches, your possessions, your pleasure? Guess what, world? Your car can't go anywhere. You don't have the keys. And then you tell this unsuspecting believer, unbeliever rather, that the keys go in the slot there in the, in the steering column, and then it powers on, and there are fun little lights on the dashboard, and then they look at you and they say, well, how absurd is that? And you say, precisely. We boast in Christ because he became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, and he became those things so that we could take joy in, and pleasure in taking joy and pleasure in vanity. The cross, we believe and confess, is the linchpin of our faith because the cross was the wisdom of God wrapped up in a cloak of foolishness. So in Christ, friends, you are bought with the foolishness of the cross. You are bought with foolishness. So your scoffing motor mouth could be silenced and your lips given over to praise for the wisdom of God. That's, what that, that's that transaction. So take your 24 hours and glorify God. Mow the lawn again and again. Refresh your internet browser. Turn it off and restart it if you need to. Pay your bills each month or a day late if you must. Fill the car with gas. Sweep your floors. Kiss your kids goodnight. And when you tuck them in and you go to bed tired, perhaps even a bit frazzled, but sober, sober <laughs> and centered on King Jesus who welcomes your weary head into the lap of his gracious comfort. Let's pray. Father, you have been incredibly good to us and kind to us. And we do not want to be people who lament the vanity, people who just complain about the vanity. We want to be people who embrace it and enjoy it because it comes from your hand. Father, I, I would ask and pray, especially for those who may uh, be tired of the grinding the day in and day out, um, that you would give them a renewed sense of joy, that your spirit would speak to them and speak to us so that we are not tempted to, to despair, but brought to joy and peace and happiness. Um, Father, we give you our time today and we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. We thank you for that foolishness because that foolishness is your wisdom. So we embrace it and we enjoy it and we celebrate it today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.